Thank you, Greg, and once again, greeting to you, our listeners. We thank you once again for tuning into our program. We are continuing our, ser- our series on the topic of worship. It can be no doubt that one of the most amazing facts taught in scriptures is the fact that God actually seeks human beings to worship Him, and He delights in them when they worship Him according to His criteria, or as Jesus puts it in John 4, when they worship Him in spirit and in truth. Listen also to the psalmist in Psalm 149, beginning at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his Maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. End of quote. Notice. God takes pleasure in His people when they worship Him as He directs. And also, we exalt in Him when we do so. In other words, when we worship in spirit and in truth, God rejoices in us and we rejoice in Him. The Westminster Catechism asked the question, What is the chief end of man? And answers, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In Psalm 149 verses 2 through 4, we learn that worship is God's enjoyment of us and our enjoyment of Him. What a fantastic concept this is, my friends. Yes, it's really amazing how little emphasis is placed on true worship and how little true worship is actually being engaged in by the people of God in spite of the priority given to worship according to the dictates of God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. My friends, listen carefully. We were created to worship God. The psalmist says in Psalm 43, verse 21, quote, The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. And again in Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. The Apostle Paul, speaking of believers, says that we were chosen to worship God. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Quote, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. End of quote. And the Apostle John, looking into our future in heaven, tells us that we are commanded to worship God. Listen to his words. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, unto every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, and sea and springs and waters. End of quote. My friends, the scriptures are clear. We were created to worship God. We were chosen to worship God. And we are actually commanded to worship God. And so let me ask you then, is worship a priority in your life? No, let me put it this way. 
Is worship the top priority in your life? If it isn't, it certainly should be if we are to take the word of God seriously, and we should. We should expect considerable confusion and diversity relative to worship from those who do not hold to the central truths of Scripture. Listen carefully now. Let me repeat this. We should expect considerable confusion and diversity relative to worship from those who do not hold to the central truths of Scripture, especially those who do not know Christ. However, my friends, it is most distressing to find such confusion when the Protestant, evangelical, fundamental Christianity concerning the meaning of worship. It just don't seem that we understand what the Scriptures are teaching. Robert Weber, one of today's leading scholars on worship, in an article in Eternity magazine, made this condemning statement concerning the ignorance of the Christian in the matters of worship. I quote him, The majority of evangelical laypeople don't have the foggiest notion of what corporate worship really is. To questions such as, Why does God want to be worshipped? What is the meaning of an invocation or benediction? What does reading the scripture, praying or hearing a sermon have to do with worship? I receive blank stares and bewildered looks. End of quote. I believe, my friends, that Mr. Weber would receive the same blank stares and bewildered looks if he would ask such questions of our own people and our own churches. For the most part, we have simply not been taught what genuine worship is in our churches. It's too focused on entertainment today. To many, it simply means the preaching service or perhaps a service where we go to be entertained with good singing, meaning, loud, toe-tapping, hand-clapping, and so-called upbeat music, all geared to make the worshiper feel good. But is this really the Bible's definition of worship? Is this the kind of action and behavior that makes God feel good and enjoy our being in His presence? Let's see if we can answer these questions by looking at some of the words Scripture uses to describe the worship of God by His people. A brief glance at a good Bible concordance reveals that there are a number of Greek and Hebrew words which are rendered to worship or worshiper. There are three pairs of words which emphasize for us three primary elements of true worship. The first element is the attitude of humility. The most frequently used word in both the Old and New Testaments for worship is one which means to make obeisance to, to bow down to, or to prostrate oneself before. The Hebrew word is shakha, and the Greek word is proskunio. Shakha and proskunio. Both words describe the act of bowing or prostrating oneself in submissiveness and reverence and humility. The outward posture reflects an inner attitude of humility and respect. As the word relates to worship, it denotes a high view of God and a condescending opinion of self. And so, the true worshiper views God in his perfection, and he views man or self in his imperfection. He views God in his holiness, and he views himself in his sin. It causes one to exhibit an attitude of humility before God for the privilege of being able to come before Him without being killed instantly. And so let me pause to ask you then, 
Is such humility shown in our so-called worship services? Or are such services characterized more by self-projection, self-glory, and just plain self-pride? Not only pride in how well we can sing, how well we can play an instrument, how well we can preach, but also pride in how dignified we are because we don't show emotions by clapping or raising our hands or dancing. Such an attitude is directly opposed and contrary to the true meaning of worship, a word which at its very core denotes humility. But the word worship is also defined by the use of two other words in the Bible, words which denote that true worship is also includes rather an attitude of reverence, not only humility, but reverence. The Hebrew word is yara, and the Greek term is sebumai. The idea of both terms is the fearing of God. It is not so much the fear of terror and dread as it is the fear of wonder and awe at the majesty and greatness of the infinite God. The difference between humility and reverence is that whereas humility focuses inwardly, reverence focuses on the outward. We become aware of our finiteness and sinfulness in the sight of God's infinity and perfection. The result is humility. Reverence, however, focuses outwardly upon the awesome majesty of God. This results in reverence in His presence. Irreverence is antithetical to worship. They cannot coexist. Where there is reverence, there is n where there is irreverence, rather, there is no genuine, genuine worship. There can be no reverence without worship. That is the kind of worship God seeks, and the only kind He accepts. This is undoubtedly the case at Corinth, as recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It was the irreverence of the Corinthians at the Lord's table that required such severe discipline as sickness and death. Paul said it was because they did not judge the body rightly. Now, if I understand Paul correctly, he's saying that to participate in the remembrance of the Lord's table, to partake of the elements which symbolize the body of our Lord in a light or irreverent way, is to bring upon ourselves the discipline of God himself. This also has to do with how we regard the people of God, which is the, which is the body of Christ. Drunkenness and lack of spiritual discernment at the Lord's table reveals a spirit of irreverence which is diametrically opposed to true worship. But there's also a third element expressed in the biblical words for worship. This time, however, rather than focus on our attitude, it focuses on our actions. It is the element of service, which is the core meaning of the two other words used for worship, one being Hebrew and the other Greek. The Hebrew term is abad, and the Greek counterpart is latreu. They both mean to work, to labor, or to serve. In the Old Testament, this service was most often priestly service. In the New Testament, we are told that believers are all priests of God, so that this term does not apply only to the service of a few, as in the Old Testament, but of the entire congregation of believers in Christ. We are all priests. And so we are all to offer up to God spiritual sacrifices, including the praise of our lips. Service and worship were often linked in the Old Testament. It's no surprise, therefore, when certain tempted our Lord to worship Him, that He combined these elements. 
Satan was not asking Jesus to simply fall down to the ground before him. He was asking the Lord Jesus Christ to acknowledge him, Satan, as sovereign and to surrender to him in service. That is why the Lord responded, it is, not, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship and service cannot be isolated. They must be integrated. If it is to be true worship. However, the study of any subject, and much more so our study of worship, must consider more than just the words themselves. The context in which these words are found can also add much to our understanding of the subject. And so in addition to the ideas of humility, reverence, and service, the Bible includes at least four other essential facets of worship. The first is that of response. But I, by that I mean that worship from man's perspective is primarily a matter of response. If we were to look at our subject from another perspective other than the Bible, man would undoubtedly surmise that worship is something that he himself devised to give expression to the inner desires and needs. No, my friends. In worship, we worship God because he has made himself known to us. And it is that fact that we are responding to him because he is seeking those who would worship in spirit and in truth. He has even instructed us how to worship him. He says in Romans chapter 11 verse 36, From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things.